Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing James Franco's love letter to the room, The Disaster Artist, based on the best-selling book by Greg Sestero, as well as Martin McDonough's latest movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Let's get started. I do this whole movie for you, Greg! Take it again. Try to lose the accent. I, like many people, was uh, one of the later comers to the sheer insanity that is the room. I think I discovered it about the time that um, the uh, old Channel Awesome, That Guy with the Glasses crew, was starting to review it. And when that became a thing for that whole community, that's when I actually sat down and saw it for myself. And The Room is like a masterclass in just how not to make a movie. And it, 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 quite frankly, can go right up alongside things like Troll 2 and Birdemic as the worst movie ever made in terms of, like, production, in terms of, like, quality of writing and of filmmaking, you know? Not in terms of, like, worst... Because, I mean, there's plenty of movies that you can... Things like Birth of a Nation can be considered one of the worst movies ever made in terms of content. But in terms of, like... You know, somebody attempting to make a good movie, the the room is everything not that you shouldn't do being done. And none of that was illustrated better than in Greg Sestero's book about the whole ordeal, The Disaster Artist. And on top of the cult status that the movie was getting, The Disaster Artist was sort of like a, a look at just the insanity that was Tommy Wiseau and the making of The Room. And the movie doesn't even tackle the worst of it all. I mean, there's stuff that the movie doesn't even go into about how just insane this whole thing was. It mainly focuses on uh, Greg and Tommy. It's more about them and their friendship. And you see, and you, you were introduced to Greg as a 19 year old in San Francisco, played by Dave Franco. And he meets Tommy in an acting class. And Tom and he's fascinated by Tommy's passion. And, Tom, and he sees Tommy put everything into this just screaming of Stella from the streetcar named Desire. And all he does is scream out Stella and, and walk around this, this stage in this small little theater where they're taking these classes. And Greg is fascinated by this unbridled, unfiltered passion that Tommy has. And so he befriends Tommy and they decide to move to LA and try to get and try to work as real actors. And Greg has a couple of better opportunities because I mean yeah, Greg Sestero's a good looking dude. And especially since he was a young, good looking dude in his twenties 
he 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 was fine. It was Tommy who was being pigeonholed into certain roles. Like people kept saying, "You have an accent. You could easily play. You have an accent. You have these weird. You have this weird, ugly looking face. You should be a villain." And he's like, "I don't want to be villain. I want to be hero. I am hero of story." <laughs> that's that's kind of my. I haven't worked on my uh, Jane Franco has the Tommy Wiseau persona nailed down. I mean, he's a little bit deeper. He has more of a baritone to his voice than Tommy. Tommy is way up here. Tommy is way up in his tenor voice. He's all on his own head. That's what Tommy voice is. James Tommy is down here. It's, it's, it's a real Hollywood movie. He's got more back. He's got more bass in his voice, James does when he do Tommy. <laughs> um, so yeah, aside from, but yeah, let's, that's a little thing. Like, James could have worked on the, the uh, tenor, or maybe he couldn't. I don't know the, de- I don't know the range of his voice. Maybe he couldn't do a higher pitch. But uh, he gets the persona down, which is what's important. You believe James is Tommy Wiseau, based on his performance. <laughs> and, um... Once they get to, you know, so they're in L.A. for a bit. They uh, try to make it. Things aren't going well for either of them. They keep getting called, like, Jay, like uh, Greg is, uh, he's kind of being neglected by his agency. In a one-bit cameo by, I believe, Sharon Stone, uh, who just comes in as the uh, agency manager and hires Greg as a, puts Greg on, you know, hires Greg as one of her actors, and then just never seen her again. So she's just kind of in and out real quick and um Greg's kind of not getting the roles he was hoping for he's not getting any roles really and it's mate and Tommy's being pigeonholed into certain into this certain demographic that he doesn't feel he's a part of and so they decide to make their own movie and uh Tommy digs into his unending wealth of money that he somehow has that we still don't know how he has and he after uh after working on the script, he finally come. You know, he finally writes out his masterpiece, *The Room*, and he and Greg get to work on casting it, uh, renting out the cameras and the and the and the film space, the studio space, and the last third, I want to say, of the movie, the last, the third act is the actual making of *The Room*, and you get to see, and that's where you get to see just the sheer unbridled insanity they went you know like several weeks over over their uh original film like there's a great running gag uh, in the movie of day one of 40 uh for for their shooting schedule and then it's like day 62 of 40 (laughs) eventually and it's and it's you really and you only see just the bits of, because I mean, of course, Greg goes into more detail just how awful Tommy was to the crew, to his fellow actors, and we only see just the, just the tip of the iceberg of Tommy's insanity because he, he makes the uh, the woman who plays Lisa's mom, Lisa, that actress, has a has a fainting spell because she's overheated, it because Tommy refuses to pay for air conditioning despite his un ending well of money and uh you know he he abuses the actress who plays lisa right before they do their sex scene and it's 
it's all just just awful what he does to these to his actors and to his crew and it's like he spies on his crew all the time in case they're saying bad things about him so he can yell at them later threaten to fire them it's it's insane and the movie ends with the sh- with the first screening of the room and Tommy and Greg kind of rekindling the friendship after Greg got sick of Tommy being almost eerily possessive of Greg cuz like there's a there's a subplot where Greg meets uh his girlfriend played by Allison Brie and they things start to get pretty serious and Allison Brie's character does a, has a Pilates class with Brian Cranston who at the time was filming Malcolm in the Middle. And Greg was hoping to get a bit part on Malcolm in the Middle and hope and finally get some actual screen time. And Tommy um, kind of like forbids him, you know, like, oh, what's the term? Um, coer- like coerces him almost. Like, like basically like, if you're, you're my friend, I write a movie for you. Instead of t- letting Greg take one day he holds the movie and the production over Greg's head as like, I do this for you. This for, I do it all for you, Greg. You, you know, as though he, you betray me, Greg, by going out and getting more work, which is what you're supposed to do as an actor, asshole. But yeah, and so Gre- Greg has a falling out with Tommy because Tommy is a, is a possessive dick. And... By the but then then by the end of the movie they kind of rekindle their friendship as the world laughs at Tommy's creation, turning him to switch it back around and say it's not a drama because like he initially put uh, pictures it to Greg as the next great Tennessee Williams you know the next coming of Tennessee Williams or Shakespeare, and he's great drama he's tragedy and then now oh no he's dark comedy I make it comedy. So yeah, Tommy is just a huckster, you know, by all accounts. And yeah, it's insane. And even Tommy Wiseau does get to make it. I think I think most of the cast has some cameos in there. I know Tommy plays a character, you know, with a name. I know, I think Greg shows up in, in, in something, uh, in a bit part somewhere. But mo- most of the cast is com- comedians, like Seth Rogen who was also producing, uh, is the script supervisor for The Room. Um, Paul Shear's the director of photography. You've got uh, his Paul Shear's wife and, um, and a co-host, June Diane Raphael, and his other co-host, Jason Manzoukas, from their podcast, How Did This Get Made? So the entire, all three hosts of How Did This Get Made are in the, are, are, were in some way involved in the making of The Room in The Disaster Artist. Uh, Jason Mantoukas runs the camera rental store and studio where they film, and June and June plays uh, Michelle, the actress who plays Michelle, and uh, uh, Ari Ari Grat, what is it? Ari Grainer, um, who you might know from uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, Whip It. What's your number? Youth and Revolt. Uh, she plays. She plays the actress who plays Lisa, 
And um, oh God, just the whole cast. Zac Efron has a little part that you might not recognize. Josh Hutcherson <laughs> plays the kid who plays Denny. <laughs> so Josh Hutcherson has to be the Denny role. <laughs> um, Megan Mullally is in a little bit part as uh, Greg's mom. You get to see... Who else? Uh, um, Jen Apatow has a little bit part, has a little cameo in there. Melly Griffith has a cameo. Hannibal Burris is um, Jason Mantzoukas' co-worker and, like, all, who also works at that place. Bob Odenkirk is in this. Odenkirk is in this. Uh, Randall Park has a little cameo. Casey Wilson has a cameo. Gerard Carmichael has a cameo. Uh, there's a bit... Apparently there's some act, some lady in Hollywood named Angeline. Maybe she's a porn star or something. She uh, has a little run-by thing. Zoe Deutsch uh, is in here. You've all, and then, of course, the movie opens up with, like, testimonies about The Room by Adam Scott, Danny McBride, Keegan-Michael Key, Kevin Smith, Ike Barinholtz, Kristen Bell, J.J. Abrams, and Lizzie Kaplan. It's insane. All of it. And then, of course, you, they're a little... Uh, apparently, Zach Braff was, in, was somehow involved in the making of this, and I didn't realize. I don't I don't remember him in the movie. He's If he's there, I, I don't remember him. But apparently, he's there. Yeah, Greg Sestero is in this. Um, I don't see any of the other uh, room cast members. List. Unfortunately, Greg's ca uh, role is uncredited, sadly. That kind of sucks. I mean, Tommy gets a credited role and he doesn't. I mean, he wrote the book. Greg is probably the reason that they are there. That there even is a movie. Uh, oh, who knows? Who knows why? Why the credits go where they do? Because I mean, Brian Cranston's cameo is uncredited too. Um, and at any rate, the disaster artist. But there is one thing I was kind of worried that I kind of agree with uh, Lindsay Ellis on. She was commenting on how she was worried that the disaster artist might sort of venerate. I commented on this in the last episode, uh, how she was worried that the that the uh, disaster artist would somehow venerate Tommy, would you know, ameliorate him, you know, forgive him of his terribleness by because we all because so many people enjoy get so much enjoyment out of how terrible the room is and now the disaster artist is a full-on biopic about him and Greg so I I do agree with that because we in this day and age when we're finally starting to clean house with all the terrible people in Hollywood we don't need to start building up some guy who did just as horrible things to his actors on set but um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's probably the, the 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 one criticism I would give it. The reason it's why it's not like my pick of the year. This is going to be a lot of people's picks of the year. Pick of the year, but it's it's probably not. It doesn't really make my list only because I was hoping for more of the third act, where it is. It just I w I was hoping that the Greg and Tommy stuff would have been like Act One. Set up, they move to L.A., they start making the movie for Act 2. Act 2 would have been the full... Act 2 and Act 3 would have been the full-on making of The Room. And unfortunately, it's mo so much of it is focused on just Greg and Tommy and their friendship that it that it, that it feels too forgiving of, of just how, how terrible Tommy is. Because you see... When you see what Tommy does, and you, when you read what he does in The Disaster Artist, the book... 
the movie is just once again, it barely touches on just how awful Tommy Wiseau is to his crew, to his actors, to his friends, and it's all. It seems very forgiving because once again, this this product was such a cultural phenomenon that we don't want to focus on the fact that oh yeah, the guy who made it is kind of a dirtbag, and he's and they, I think it's Hollywood sort of. Him mystifying uh, the fact that we don't know how old he is, where he's from, where he got his money. We don't know. He's a mystery. And I'd honestly much rather deal with the fact that he's also a horrible, condescending, and controlling dirtbag. You know, well, yeah, a lot of directors are. Well, that doesn't mean you should allow it. Yeah, the days of the, the days of Kubrick... And Hitchcock are over. You don't get to treat people like that. You're a professional. You treat people like professionals. This is still a job. People have rights to not be treated like garbage on the job. Asshole. So yeah, um, uh, The Disaster Artist was fun. It was a good time. I'd recommend you check it out. But at the same time, I it's not quite one of my favorites of the year. I mean, it, James Franco almost full-on recreates uh, certain segments from the room. Uh, and you and he, at the end of the movie, it's played side-by-side side with the original. It's pretty darn close. The only problem is the actors who were in the recreation are actually good actors, so it comes off way better. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a hell of a ride. I just, I just agree that we probably shouldn't be so forgiving of a, of a guy we barely even know. And, we, and what we do know is that he treats people like dirt. This reporter, for one, hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside. This doesn't put an end to anything. This is just a start. Why don't you put that on your good morning Missouri wake up broadcast, bitch? mention this on the uh in reference to uh the disaster artist but i had to see the disaster artist in the same theater as i did ladybird so i had to drive all the way to the next town over in order to see the disaster artist and here i had to drive to another town in order to see three billboards and it's you know that's it it's once again ties back to last week's discussion of Akron is not a cinephile's town. It is a mainstream sort of movie-going audience. So all the independent stuff, all the artsy stuff, I'm going to have to drive to other theaters outside of town in order to see them because there's only one theater in Akron who kind of plays them besides the actual independent art house theater, and it's not exactly a great theater to go to anyway. So I have to drive into into the neighboring counties in order to see these other movies because they're holts they're still they're there where some theaters are still playing Blade Runner some are still playing it I think someone was still playing something from August uh it's insane that theaters are still apparently that's still making more money than if they just saved that gave up that screen to the disaster artist or something you know it's crazy uh Anyway, uh, as for this one, uh, I had a good time. I enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, 
I don't think it's the best thing out there. You know, it's not the best movie I've ever seen, but at the same time, I enjoyed the story. I Frances McDormand is just a powerhouse of an actress, and she's amazing in this. Uh, the premise, for those who aren't aware, is we start a year after the rape and murder of uh, Frances McDormand's daughter. Literally within walking distance of their house. Like, the billboards in question are right down the street from their house. And you can still, they still show you the part of the grass that was burned the year before. And one, the movie opens up with Francis McDormand passing by these billboards, learning, finding out that they're all owned by a, a local uh, advertising company. And she rents out the billboard, th the three billboards to read Raped While Dying, uh, or I think maybe the daughter's name, Raped While Dying, uh, One Year Later, Still No Arrests, How Come Sheriff Willoughby. And she's calling out the police department for not finding, for not, for no leads on this case, on the case of her daughter. And, and, uh, and kind of, pointing out the hypocrisy of what's been going on. Because apparently before the, movie, the events of the movie take place, the police department was also got in trouble for torturing a black uh, suspect that they had arrested, done by uh, Sam Rockwell's character, supposedly. And so as soon as she puts these billboards up, she becomes a, 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 a very divisive figure in the town. Like most of the town can't just thinks she's gone way out of line. Like whatever sympathy they may have had for her, it's gone because how dare she question the police department for not finding out what happened. And like, there's a great scene early on where uh, the where the where a town priest uh, comes in and tries to talk her out of the billboard, you know, tries to talk her into taking the billboards down and she just tears into him. Uh, uh, like she references uh, a documentary about how in LA, uh, because of the violence of the crypt between the Crips and Bloods, they enacted a law that said even if you're a, as long as long as you're affiliated with these groups, even if you did nothing wrong, you're guilty by association, and they and they can arrest you. And she straight up calls out the father for being a hypocrite because he's guilty by association to literal pedophiles and pederasts. And how dare he come in and lecture her about about the billboards when he's the when he's guilty by association with his with his fellow priests? Um, it's just an amazing scene, and and especially the way Francis McDormand delivers it is just so satisfying to hear just you know kind of build up, build up, and then jugular. Just straight up goes for the jugular on the priest. Doesn't even care. Francis and Tormund's Mildred gives not one F about anything. And she is probably one of my favorite characters Francis has ever played. And so as the movie progresses, she we, learn, we, we uh, kind of cut between three main characters. Mildred and how she's kind of stirring the pot in the town. Like people really start to dislike her. Uh, especially since she calls out the sheriff 
when most of the town knows he has pancreatic cancer. So they really think, so they're all sympathetic to the sheriff and don't care about the mother of, uh, and once again, this is a small town in Missouri. They're a bunch of, they're a bunch of, uh, you know, red-blooded conservative folks who support their police department and think they think they can do no wrong. So, of course, the police didn't do anything wrong. And meanwhile, we get to also see one of those police officers, played by Sam Rockwell, who is the kind of cop that does things wrong, literally throwing out the guy in charge of the advertising agency from his second-story window because he wouldn't take the billboards down. And you see that in the trailer, so it's not quite spoiling anything. But yeah, the cops aren't, um, you know, their hands are, aren't clean on this matter. It's not like the police department is, is a pristine example of the community, let's say. And we also get to see, for most of the movie, uh, Woody Harrelson as the sheriff, who kind of, ha who's dealing with his pancreatic cancer and dealing with, um, Hit, you know his the you know his life coming to an end much sooner than he would hoped because you know he's got two kids to worry about he's got his wife he gets re as soon as the billboards come up he gets really invested in and wanted to solve this murder again and cl close the case and he wants to try and get that in before he passes and Abby Cornish is his wife who I think is trying an Australian accent, because if she thinks that's American Southern, she needs a better acting coach, because woof, whatever accent she was trying to do, it was bad. Abby Cornish is probably the worst technical thing about this movie, the worst aspect of the movie that isn't content. Because once again, most of the content is despicable. You've got a woman who gives no abs, just treating everybody like, just use it, just, tr just, filling the town with hate towards her because she is stirring up trouble in their eyes. They, the town is very much against the idea of causing trouble, as it were. They like the stat, once again, they're a small town in Missouri. They like things as they are. They don't want people causing trouble. And she's the kind of person who's stirring up trouble. And so they don't take kindly to her, especially but especially to, as the movie goes on and with uh, the sheriff's character. And like even, there's even a point where the dentist tries to extract a tooth without Novocaine because he's pissed off about the damn billboards. Like, like yeah, I, I, Akron's not a big town, but, and especially the areas around Akron are kind of, kind of remind me of Ebbing, Missouri. So yeah. I kind of feel for uh, Mildred in this case because these these small town folks are petty as hell. Like you get petty people wherever you are, but there's not there's nothing quite like small town pettiness. Because I'll be damned if they don't think their 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 crap don't stink. You know, they they think. Because whatever little aspect of power they have in their podunk little town, that they get to lord it over the people around them. And it's just, like, you see that with Sam Rockwell's character. You see it with all the people who try to intimidate Mildred into taking the billboards down. Because God forbid she call out the police on their hypocrisy. And the only people who agree with Mildred? 
the few black folk in the movie. There are a couple of uh, black characters in the movie that Mildred hangs out with. One of them is her co-worker, and then uh, one of them is the uh, worker who put up the uh, billboards. And, yeah, the only people on Mildred's side are the people who also get targeted by the police. So, shock of shocks, right? <laughs> and, unfortunately, uh, you do get um, a great performance also out of, I think his name is Lucas Hedges? Luke Hedges? Let me get the name right. He's, uh, yeah, Lucas Hedges. He's best known recently for uh, Manchester by the Sea. He was the nephew in that. And he was also just in Ladybird as well. So he's in two uh, awards season movies, both of which he gives solid performances. Uh, Ladybird, he plays the first boyfriend of uh, the title character um, that they that they, they kind of go into something revealing later on, but they but that never really goes anywhere. Again, I, Ladybird is such an unjo uh, a disjointed mess that I kind of don't like it you know i prefer the tightness of the, the like the tightness of the script for um edge of 17 because i feel like that story is more self-contained whereas uh once again ladybird i feel like is more haphazard and i feel like it doesn't quite ha stick the landing as it were and once again it's greta gerwig is a, a burgeoning um writer director this is her first, this is her directorial debut and like her second screenplay, full length. So like, yeah, early on, it's early on in her career. Not everybody starts out of the gate like freaking Jordan Peele with Get Out. Sometimes you gotta work your way into things. You gotta feel, you gotta, you know, get your sea legs as it were. You gotta work at it. And uh, for me, Greta Gerwig, but once again, I'm on the outside of this one. Most people seem to enjoy Lady Bird. Most people seem to get something out of Lady Bird that I didn't. I got more out of Edge of 17, but that's all preference. Uh, back to this one, Lucas Hedges is the son of, is Mildred's son, and he is, you know, he's going through some stuff too. <laughs> he has to deal with bullying at school because of his mom, and he has to deal with the fact that, and he's, he outright calls out his mom for, for outlining the details of his sister's death and in, in, in a way that he never wanted to think about. And there's nothing he can do about that. That's just there now. He has to deal with that because his mom wanted to stir, stir up trouble. But at the same time, he's still on his mom's side. He's, in, he's, he's a interesting character in that he's pissed at his mom for what she's doing and how she's affecting his own life. But he loves his mom and he knows that his mom is grieving and in pain and he... Is more, and he cares about seeing that his sister also, you know, her, her sister's murderer also gets brought to justice. It's not like he's unsympathetic. He's more, he's probably the most sympathetic to her because he knows what's up with her, and they have a lot of fun. Uh, you also get John Hawks, who I didn't recognize. Apparently, he's been in some, like, he's in Marcy, Maybelline, May Marlene, whatever that movie is, Marcy, Marcy. May, Maybe mad, 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 mad world, uh, whatever. I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's some indie movie from a couple of years ago, but uh, he kind of looks like an older Ethan Hawke, or like Ethan Hawke's older brother, uh, and he plays Mildred's ex-husband, who was a who's just this ex. He's an ex-cop. They, you know, he's they identify him as an ex-cop, and he's violent and 
abusive, except to his 19-year-old uh, girlfriend that we get to see. And and so, yeah, there, he kind of comes at Mildred, too, because he sides with he's siding with the cops on this one. He doesn't want to stir up trouble. And he thinks Mildred is just causing trouble because they're focusing on her and not her daughter's murderer. Although they weren't focusing on her daughter's murderer anyway, so what? You know what? Like you know, either you either you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Uh, you also get a kind of wasted Peter Dinklage because Peter Dinklage is amazing, and I thought we were gonna get way more because he's a potential love interest for uh, Mildred, and he's the town midget, but. Uh, he is the lo he's a local used car salesman, but we ne we barely get any time with him. We get like half a dozen scenes with him, and then he we, and then he leaves Mil Mildred after um, after a fight over uh, over a date that they agreed to. And he I'm rightfully pissed on behalf of him because Peter Dinklage's character has shown that he cares about Mildred, and she's so bitter and hateful that she can't even accept the fact that this guy might actually like her and sympathize with her. And so he kind of gets the shaft at the end of it because she would much, she, you know, she's still, she's so full of piss and vinegar that any sort of sympathy he tries to give to her is met with anger and hate. And so he's kind of screwed. And he, you know, he, and he, and I, you really feel for him, but at the same time, we barely get any time with him. We need more Peter Dinklage and things. Guys, Hollywood, I'm telling you, Peter Dinklage, put him in stuff. Movies, put him in movies. Put him in all the movies. Make, don't waste your Peter Dinklage. Put him in all of the movies. He is amazing. Uh, that being said, uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I enjoyed it more than The Disaster Artist because I, I guess I didn't have any any expectations, honestly. I expected different things from The Disaster Artist than what I got, but I, but I accepted it for what it was. This I got kind of what I expected from the trailer, and I enjoyed myself a lot. It's dark. It's, it's like, grimy, and it's... it's it, this is kind of like a rusty old chainsaw covered in mildew and grime. It cuts with a rusty, hard edge to it, and it's biting, and you laugh at a lot of points. It's very humorous at points, but it's so dingy and dirty and just de delves into the dredges of society. That, and, co and I'm not going to say it comments on its commentary on race and racial relations with, like, the cops and small-town communities is... And he is, he is better than Get Out or something like Detroit even. But yeah, I don't see it more. I don't see it as much about race as much about people in small, people getting fed up with that, with their local police departments, not doing their job and not pulling their weight. And kind of, and also the sort of tragedy, the sort of tragic aftermath of when, when you lose somebody that you love, you know, it's, it's, this is what happens when you feel like, you know, somebody's loss is go, goes unfulfilled. It goes without closure, and but the, and then by the movie's end, it kind of leaves on a hanging note where you're not quite sure. Or how, it, there's not a definitive ending, and 
I won't say what happens or the, or anything about or to spoil anything else, but I will say that the ending, it's an open end. It's very open ended. It's very much up to interpretation, and you get to see how that works out, and it works out based on the character arcs you see between Mildred and Sam Rockwell's Dixon, the cop. Because Sam Rockwell's Dixon, it starts as the most despicable kind of character. And you get to see him go through the go through these, you know, machinations of like, what does he really want? I mean, he's a small town cop, has to live with his mom, and he read you know, he's kind of a kind of a kind of a man child, reads comic books on the job, and he kind of has to start to question what it is he wants and who he wants to, what kind of person he wants to be and and how he wants to live his life. And you get to see that. And it's just as much about him as it is about Mildred coming to terms with the loss of her daughter and how she wants to deal with that. And yeah, it's, it's a solid movie. It's not, I, I won't say it's great. I honestly think if it's not playing near you, you can wait. You can wait and check it out for yourself when it's at Redbox or on Amazon for like $2.99 to rent. I'm not going to say you need to rush out and see this, especially with what's coming up later this week. But I personally enjoyed this movie, just if, if for nothing else, then because sometimes you just need something that's... Sometimes you just need that dingy old rusty chainsaw to come tearing through things and be like... This is insane and crazy, and I love it. You know, it's like, much like much like how with the room. Sometimes you just want this uh, a smorgasbord of nothing but the worst McDonald's and Burger King food. Sometimes a little trashiness and a little dirt and grime is good for your food. I mean, heck, how many times have your local restaurants been you know cited for code violations and the food is still good? That's what I'm saying. Sometimes a little grime and dirt and grease and everything gives a movie more character that's all you know if you're you know don't go in looking for a good time that's all i'm saying this isn't the feel good movie of the year you're gonna you know if you gotta have the stomach for this one it's it's a rough one uh that being said that's all i had the reviews for this week i'm gonna have to hold off on going out in style until next week because of reasons my uh ankle got all swollen and puffy again anyway that's that's not that's not none of your guys concern so let's get into the discussion did you know ash's name in japan is satoshi after pokemon creator satoshi tajiri did you know roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the roroni kenshin manga did you know godzilla's japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale if you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. Recent release of the of the um, 
the behind the scenes of the room and my discussion points about Tommy Wiseau as a director and um, what once again the recent been going on in Hollywood. Brian Singer was another guy who had to be fired off of the set of Dark Phoenix for X Men because he was because um was it Rami Malik from I think it was Rami Malik from uh, Mr Robot who uh, called him out on it. Let me see. Okay, it was supposed to be a Queen biopic that they was fired off of, as well as uh, X-Men. Is that another ability to Okay, so yeah, Rami Malek, from, uh, who I guess is supposed to be playing... Uh, is Robbie Malik playing Freddie Mercury? Hold on a second. Wait a tick. I can kind of see it. I mean, you put a big old bushy mustache on it, I can see Robbie Malik is. Yep, he's going to be Freddie Mercury. There's some news for you. If you're a Robbie Malik fan, he's going to be playing Freddie Mercury. And, um... And so he... Well, he was citing Brian Singer's unprofessionalism on set, the way he mistreated his crew and his staff. And, oh, here we go. Oh, here's a great quote. Uh, who's... Rumors said my ex... Creative differences, is it? And Hollywood Reporter, the Hollywood Reported... Whoops. This is what, see, folks, if you run a website and you run anything print-related, type-related, have a proofreader. The Hollywood Reported claims. It's, it's a typo caused by autocorrect. Use a proofreader, please. Human eyes, you need these things. Claims an insider told them that Singer is suffering, Singer is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh please, the guy who guy who is up for accusations of molesting boys on set behind the scenes and on set is suffering post traumatic stress. Yeah, I bet. Um, what was the other, what? But so wait, is Singer still involved with? I'm doing this uh, research on the fly because this is the kind of professionalism you expect from uh, the popcorn junkie. So wait, he was kicked off of the... Okay, here. Okay, cool. Um, Jennifer Lawrence came back after, convi after, after convincing producer and writer Simon Kimber to take over the director's chair. Everything was on time. Everything was organized. These movies have always been fun amidst chaos. And now they were fun with no chaos. 
Okay, so... Okay, so Singer wasn't involved at all. See, these are the things I didn't... I assumed he was involved in Dark Phoenix. So apparently it's Simon Kinberg who took over for F Dark Phoenix from Brian Singer, who went on, who was trying to do, who was signed on to do the Bohemian Rhapsody Queen biopic. And he's been fired off of that because Rami Malek called him and several, and a couple of others. I know Rami Malek was kind of the, the spearhead, but I'm sure there were plenty of others who backed him up and saying that he, Brian Singer was being unprofessional on set and making the set a bad workspace. And... Okay, so that makes sense. Um, I was wondering what Rami Malek had to do with X-Men. <laughs> Apparently that's more to do with the Queen biopic. Uh, yeah. So yeah, in lieu of that, let's talk about how we don't need another hero. We don't need to know the way home. That's my uh, butt rock version of the theme from Beyond Thunderdome by Tina Turner. Because we don't need any more heroes. And, or do we? Do we need heroes? What is the nature of heroes in terms of celebrities, uh, people that we hold, look up to and hold to an esteem? You know, uh, what do we need these kinds of people? And, you know, and do they need to even be real people? Which is something I wanted to get into. Um, later on in the discussion, but the idea being that do we need human, real-life heroes? Because, I mean, I think we've always had a necessity for heroic figures. This is this is something I've even wanted to talk, uh, talk about in full in a documentary form. I've always wanted to do... One of the, I've mentioned before the various movies I've wanted to make, the ideas I've had rolling about. One of them is the necessity of heroes. Do we need heroes, and do they need to be based on real people? And part of that is because, personally, one of my own personal heroes in my own personal life turned out to be a philanderer, a, a sexual abuser, like a, 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 you know, a man who used his position of power to... Um, to take advantage of his students, his specifically female students. And, and and that ordeal itself wanted me to write a screenplay based on my experience and kind of tell that story. Although um, the more I thought, the more I think about it now, the more I think that story would be better off about, how to, I don't know, because like, do people really care about? Oh, here's a here's a guy who was who lost his professor because the professor uh, took advantage of a girl he also liked. That's the that's that's the crazy part. The the professor I asked the girl out that he was that he was last known taking advantage of, and I was hoping to to have asked her out and to go out to go out with her, and it turns out she was already going with my professor and my advisor. That's kind of what inspired the story. But do re people really care about me in that situation? Wouldn't it be more... I think... I feel like... I feel like people would care more about her and what's going on in her life than about... than they would about my, myself. And 
maybe I'll re maybe I'll rework it so it's about a female student and combine my combine what happened to me with what would which with what kind of happened to her with what I know happened to her. Um, I feel like more people may be into that kind of story, hearing about the victim side rather than a tertiary character who also who who also suffered from this guy's you know, su suffered from holding this guy up on a pedestal and admiring him for so many years and learning the truth about him. I feel like I feel like the victim story is more interesting than what you find than what I went through in retrospect thinking about it now and maybe maybe I'll I'll work on it I'll work on the storyline I'll work on like if I I'll come up with a an outline of both versions and see which people like more I really need to get work on my writing dude of all the things I need to work on I need to take time out and work on my and work on the stuff I'm passionate about and instead of feeling all tired and mopey and playing Pokemon Ultra Moon and watching YouTube videos. I'm almost caught up on Super Beard Bros. No, I'm not. They have like they have like almost a thousand. I'm not even close to being caught up on them. Uh, I'm caught up on a lot of their series though. They're more recent stuff. But anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, back on topic, the idea being that once again, this has affected me personally, but also with how people look at how people are dealing with Cosby. Um, Trump. Who else? Uh, who was who was another of the big ones? Cosby was one of the big ones. Trump is a big one for a lot of people, and you know Obama is another one that comes to mind. The idea of these figures that we hold in such high regard and esteem. Maybe you don't hold one. You all hold these figures in high esteem, and based on who we are. My dad holds Reagan and Trump in high esteem. I I used to hold Obama and uh, Cosby in high esteem, and when you come to learn of just what they, what you know, the kind of stuff that they've done and how they aren't perfect people, and how and sometimes they are uh, they are accessories and even perpetrators of horrible crimes, you start to think about: Do we once again? Do we need this kind of? Do we need these people as our heroes? Like, how much of a how much do our heroes need to be perfect in order to call them heroes? You know, do our do do our heroes need to be perfect? Like that, like how so many conservatives call out uh, the fact that the founding fathers owned slaves when bringing down Confederate statues, despite the fact that the founding fathers didn't commit treason. But that's a whole other thing. The it's a it's a it's a it's a distraction of an argument, but at the same time, should we hold the founding fathers as heroes? Because we all come to re we've most of us have come to realize they were slave owning, most likely racist, most likely sexist, most likely awful people most of the times. These aren't these were all wealthy land owning white dudes who probably didn't care about anybody but themselves and their own group. They didn't care about the slaves. They didn't care about, you know, any of the other people wanting to come. They didn't care about the indigenous people of this country. So do we hold the founding fathers in that high of a regard because of the fact that they were terrible people aside from the fact that they helped form this country? How, 
much do we disregard the truth about a terrible person if that person also did things that we see as important to us. That's why I think, that's why you, that's why I feel like there's, you know, the, the, you know, once again, society needs its heroes. But do we need our heroes to be real people? Because that's the thing. One of the things that just came out as of this recording, this past weekend, uh, you hear there was a viral video of a 10-year-old in Tennessee who got the crap, who got like milk spilled on him and the crap kick out of him because, because of one reason or another. I, I, they, they never really, I don't, I haven't watched the full video. It felt very, you know, it felt, it felt very, once again, it felt very twee. It felt like it was garnering, it felt like it was trying to garner sympathy. And, and I don't, and once again, I don't need, it's like the thing with the, with the bear dying of starvation that also went, was going around Twitter this weekend. I get it. I know. I want to help. I can only do so much. You don't, you don't need to make me feel awful for something that I can only do so much to help. And with this kid, it didn't take long for them to realize, oh, oh, oh wait, the mom waves around the Confederate flag and calls black people uppity and is very much the kind of awful person that we think about when we think of the South, TM. And so, so how much do we know about what really happened to the kid? Because this kid got invited by both Mark Ruffalo and uh, Chris Evans to the Infinity War premiere. Are they going to rescind their invitations now that they know that he that maybe he's just being a pawn of his mom of his mom trying to garner sympathy and a GoFundMe that didn't take long for her to close down after she got her muns after she got her sympathy money she took that thing down and ran home and do and do we hold the kid how much do we hold against the kid for his mom's terrible actions? You know, how, do we even know what really happened to the kid? As much as the kid got bullied, there's, you know, once again, there's rumor of the kid also being a dick to, the, to, to his other school, schoolmates. So, it's not, so maybe this is a case of a, of a bully getting bullied back by other kids. You know, maybe he was the bully. Maybe he treated kids like crap. And so in return, they treated him like crap. And then the mom decided to use his own pain to garner sympathy from the Internet and get money out of it. And so, well, if the kid wasn't bullied before, he sure will be now once it turns out, oh, hey, your mom's an awful person. What the hell, dude? <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it really makes you wonder how much should our, how much should we hold any human person to any esteem or regard? Like, how, how much do you hold up a personality or a figure in history or in culture or anything else because because no matter how how you hold them eventually they're going to have to disappoint you thankfully my hero has always been weird al yankovic and so far he has yet to disappoint me he has not outed himself as a racist he has not outed himself as a sexist he i've heard um there you know i 
there are, you know, I've talked to a couple of uh, people in my online groups that do question his use of transphobic language, mostly in his older songs. And that's, that's understandable. That's, you know, that's something where, yeah, I can understand not wanting to, and that's, and once again, these are, most of the songs where those come up aren't his big works. Like there's not a lot of transphobic lyricism in Eat It or Fat or uh, The Night Santa Went Crazy or Christmas at Ground Zero or um, Albuquerque. Uh, oh, mm, I don't remember Albuquerque. Maybe there was, I have to re-listen to it. Um, Cause I think, cause I feel like in that one, if there's any derogatory language, it's more, de it's more descriptive. Um, not to excuse him, but it's not like he. Cause I feel like that's the other thing too is, the, a lot of the transphobic language that comes up is use is the use of transvestite as sort of a comedic, like a punchline, and that's more in talk and that's more in the songs Jerry about Jerry Springer and Talk Soup where they did, do a lot of. Uh, where he was punching at these shows for featuring, and for being almost freak show like, and you and calling being like, oh, we've got you know we've got a transvestite on here, uh, which was much more um, acceptable, for lack of a better term, in the eighties and nineties. At the same time, I feel like most of his stuff since then, ha ha it hasn't featured that kind of language. So I feel like. He's kind of, the, the longer he goes on, the more he realizes, I shouldn't be talking about this. I shouldn't be making jokes about this. I should be just being, you know, like, the worst thing you could say is, oh, he advocates for the, the, the harm, like, harm against weasels. For, it's stuff like Weasel Stomping Day, which is more, which, is, once again, that's more, that's, that's almost to the point of missing the joke. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, your mileage may vary. At the, but... Weird Al personally hasn't shown himself to be any kind of the terrible person that we've seen out of guys like Cosby or Brian Singer or uh, Kevin Spacey or Woody Allen or Louis C.K. or Harvey Weinstein. You know, he hasn't been one of those kind of people. He seems to be much more level-headed and much more in control of his own life. You know, he hasn't felt the need to take advantage of people and do harm to anybody else around him because he. I feel like he would feel really bad if he if he felt like he hurt something. He's the guy who felt bad that Coolio didn't approve his parody. He did. His label made allowed him to do the parody because they knew it was going to be a hit. And he when he as soon as he realized Coolio was pissed at it because he didn't approve of it, Weird Al went immediately to make amends with Coolio so that it was okay. That's the kind of person Weird Al has shown himself to be, <laughs> you know? So I really hope it doesn't turn out that he's, that, that we find out, oh yeah, uh, Weird Al's the kind of guy who um, harasses his, the interns or something. Or maybe his, oh God, maybe his drummer will be like, yeah, Weird, Weird Al was, felt me up and pitched my butt every, every you know, before every show, every, for, for as long as we've been touring. I don't know. I, I really hope not. I really hope it doesn't turn out that Al has some secret dark side to him. Uh, but yeah, other than other than Al, it's mainly been uh, there was only one other guy I really held in that high of an esteem. Because like Cosby, I respected, 
but uh, I wasn't as shocked or as impacted by the revelation of how terrible he was and what he's done as I was when it was somebody more personally affecting my life, you know? When it was my professor and my advisor who was involved in that sort of stuff. Uh, but which led to the, leads to the question, should we keep our heroes fictional? Because, I mean, that's the thing that's, that's the other thing. Most of the heroes we've had in our societies and our various cultures are all fictional. Or not all fictional, they're mostly fictional. You know, the fictional figures that we have that aren't based on anybody and they aren't lionized versions of real people, they are fictional creations through and through. Mythical gods and heroes, literal heroes created as mythology. Are those better than the actual heroes that we make up our that we try to make our real world figures into? Cause that's my argument. I my argument is we should we should keep our heroes fictional, not not real. Because very rarely are the fictional heroes, aside from if if they're a continuing figure like Superman or Mickey Mouse or uh, Batman or Spider-Man where they are a cultural figure but but aside from having a bad writer make a bad version of that character the original the, the other versions of that character still exist those this character still exists in perpetuity and 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 could serve as our hero. That's why I don't buy into the idea of making of that Superman is boring. You see, you hear that so many times. That Superman's boring. He's too powerful. He's not interesting. That's, that's been the bane of DC's existence for the last couple of decades. Since the turn of the millennium, I swear the problem has always been D Superman is boring. Maybe even since the 90s. Super, Superman's boring. He's too, got too many powers. Superman was never intended to be normal. He was always created. He was the creation of two Jewish immigrants to America wanting to create their version of the ideal. He was the ideal. He is the Superman, the Ubermensch, the man above other men. He is supposed to be the one to lead the way. Which is the actual point of the Ubermensch in uh, Nietzschean philosophy. The idea that the Ubermensch is beyond other men. He is not of the people. He is above the people. He is uber, uh, over, mensch, men. He is the overman. He is above you. That's why Superman is... The, that even in his godlike is is a better Ubermensch than anything devised by Hitler. Hitler completely missed the point of Nietzsche. But I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, Superman was that ideal, the Ubermensch, the the ideal man, human, because he is above reproach. He is above the constraints of mortality and of the mortal failings of man. He is above all of that. He is the ideal. He is the beacon. 
to where we wish to be in our lives. That's, this whole, that's why um, there's the new Star Trek series is getting a lot of flack because somebody I, I, there's a headline going around this weekend where Star Trek is the gritty, not gritty, but Star Trek is the real, Star Trek Discovery is the realism we need. Star Trek, much like Superman, has always been about ideals. The ideal. Roddenberry, my dad and I were talking about this over the weekend. Roddenberry set Star Trek in a far enough future where you could get away from nations fighting each other and we could have a united Earth being a part of a wider galaxy and a wider universe. The point of that was to showcase the ideals of what, of what humanity can do when it puts aside its petty differences of race and nationality and tribalism and works together to better itself. To take that away and to do a gritty, realistic version of that completely misses the point. It's why Star Trek, Abrams Star Trek, has always been compared to, to Star Wars. Because it's Star Trek trying to be Star Wars. That's what it is. You know, you can like it, but that's what it is. It's Star Trek trying to be Star Wars. And Star Trek in its conception, was always about pursuing the ideals of humanity and pushing forward into the future. It was progressivism in its entirety, free from the constraints of modern society, pushing forward to what we hope to achieve. And to, say, and to be like, yeah, but we need it to be gritty and realistic. We need to have people. We need the people to have flaws and be be interesting, which is which seems to be code for awful. The reason people can't write Superman and the reason people can't seem to write Star Trek is because we've reached a point where we think bad uh, Breaking Bad and Sopra and the Sopranos are the pinnacle of writing, where the only way to depict characters as interesting is to make them awful people, but with good intentions, or who, but, or with human characteristics. It's like that New York Times article that was going around that they, get, that they got shamed for, for good reason. The idea of humanizing the neo-Nazi and the white nationalist. Some guy based out of Columbus who was the head of a lot of far-right movements and a white and an avowed white nationalist. New York, the New York Times decided to send a guy over and comment on the fact that, oh, he likes spaghetti. Well, no, duh. Who does? Most people like spaghetti. That doesn't explain why he's a white nationalist. You didn't explore any of that. And remember when that was their excuse? For the article, we wanted to explore the complex nature of the of why this man is a neo-Nazi and a white nationalist. You know, what led him to his ideals? He likes spaghetti. This man likes spaghetti. What does that have to do with his white nationalism? He likes spaghetti and he loves his wife. Gee, thanks, New York Times. Real hard-hitting stuff. So yeah. 
having anti that's not to say that we don't ha need anti-heroes having an anti-hero storyline is fine and can be good you don't need to make everything gritty gray anti-hero storylines some things can be pure and ideal perfect example marvel's captain america chris evans who's another guy i really him and chris hemsworth i really hope don't turn out to be contemptible douchebags thankfully chris evans hasn't been but i really hope nothing turns up where they're just awful awful people behind the scenes that being said in the marvel cinematic universe captain america steve rogers is their version of clark kent and the reason his stories have worked so well is because you have this guy who with his superpowers fight for the same ideals as superman should you can argue all day long about the the, the fact that superman is too powerful he needs bigger and badder enemies to fight good writers can make superman fight literally anything superman brought down the kkk back in the 30s was it the 20s or the 30s i think it was the 30s it was radio so i'm assuming it must have been the 30s maybe the 40s or maybe it was the 60s because i think that was it was they brought it he fought this he fought the kkk on his radio program while the kkk was drawing numbers again now it must have been the 30s because i don't think people would have been watching a tv show in the 60s not without a radio listening to a radio program but yeah superman can use his superpowers to try and do things that are that to try and solve problems besides punching bad people best superman story i've ever seen what whatever happened to truth justice and the american way who wrote that why can't I remember who wrote that? It's one of my favorite. It's my favorite Superman story. I... Here. What's so funny? That's it. What's so funny? Because there's uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow and What Do You Give the Man Who Has Everything or a couple of other really good Superman stories. Was that Superman? to the man of tomorrow was that superman yeah uh superman whatever happened to the man of tomorrow i was an out okay yeah that was good that was an alan moore um what was that one about Peter reporter tim crane in the then future of 1997 Hoping that she and the last person I've seen Superman alive. Okay, so it's something to do with the death of Superman. Um, that's another good one. I have, to, I have to check that one out again. Uh, that was an Alan. Once again, it's Alan Moore. Alan Moore does some great stuff with with heroes. Uh, anyway, what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way is the story I'm talking about. Uh, written by Joe Kelly. Oh yes. <laughs> Um, I love this line from the Wikipedia. 
What's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way is a largely is largely seen as a rejection of the principles presented by Warren Ellis and Mark Millar, who wrote the original authority series regarding the superhero genre of comics. And I love that idea. I love the idea that Jim Kelly wrote this as like an fu to Mark Millar. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the story it takes place. It was written in two thousand one. It takes place uh, within Action Comics. It's about Superman facing off with a new a team of anti-heroes called the Elite, led by uh, Manchester Black, who's a psychic. And the storyline is Superman has to deal with society's changing way and how they, how they want to tackle supervillains. They see it's a com it's a literal commentary on the fact that society the team that the people of Metropolis think Superman isn't tough enough on criminals. And they want the elite to be their new heroes. And so Superman, after, through, a course of, through the series of events of the comics, shows the t people of Metropolis what would happen if he did what they were asking him to do. If he did things more like the elite who killed their enemies and was, a gr and were, and was gritty and evil. And that was turned into uh, one of the best... Uh, DC animated movies, D Superman versus the Elite, and yeah, it's a perfect. It's this is what I hold up as how to do Superman. You've got this. You've got All Star Superman. Uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow? Really good. You people who are good at writing can write Superman. It does. It's not too hard to write Superman if you know how his character works and that's why I, that's what I always hold up to people who say Superman isn't a good hero because blah 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 gritty realism and that's why I point to that and I point to Marvel's Captain America because the MCU has made Steve Rogers their Clark Kent Superman holds a, almost all of the same ideals and pursues them with all the same vigor and passion. He's willing to stand up to what he thinks is wrong, no matter if that if the people he thinks is thinks are wrong are his friends or not. You know, when he sees something funky, Captain America isn't afraid to stand down and do thing and do and do what he believes to be right. Same should be done with Superman. Superman was was meant to be the ideal. Superman was supposed to be the kind of person we hope to be. So to say that we need Superman to punch things and we need Superman to have a gritty backstory where his dad treats him like garbage and then kills himself in a tornado. God, Man of Steel is so stupid. God, I still hate that movie. Um, yeah. It's no wonder that fans of Superman aren't into that. Fans of Superman like what we got with What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. They like the animated series Superman. The DC Animated Universe Superman is the best Superman. Even better than Christopher Reeves. The, the DC Animated Superman is the best Superman we've gotten in visual media besides comic you know outside of the comics 
I, I have no problem stating that as objective fact. It's also the best Batman we've had. You know, don't at me. Don't at me. I know what I said. You gonna fight me? I'll fight you. DC Animated Universe. Best Superman, best Batman. Arguably best Wonder Woman, but we haven't had a lot of Wonder Woman in film, period. So it's hard to say that right now. There's more Wonder Woman in that than there is in action, and then in anything else besides the 70s TV series. So I, I won't argue that at this point. It's too early to argue that, but Superman, Batman, DC Animated Universe, Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, and the Justice League cartoons. Best Superman, Batman, hands down. No question. Fight me. Uh, this uh, discussion has gone a bit off the rails, but you know, I hope you get what I'm trying to go with. The idea that our heroes are probably better off being fictional. Because even if that fictional hero gets tainted by a bad writer or a bad movie or a bad series, we still have that hero in some idealized format that we can hold up as who we want to be. We can't be let down by DC Animated Universe's Superman or the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Captain America. These heroes are held up by the fact that they can't be tarnished by human hands. They can't be ruined, except in later incarnations. You know, whatever happens, future is still untold. Uh, not for the animated universe, though. That's done and over with. So it cannot be tarnished from now on. But whatever version of a fictional character you hold up the most, it could be... Luke Skywalker from the from the original Star Wars trilogy, or it could be Rey from the from the new trilogy, or you could hold up uh, Obi Wan from the prequels. Uh, you could hold up uh, Mace Windu from the prequels. You could hold up um, Indiana Jones. Uh, whatever kind of hero holds to your ideals, a fictional hero will never be sullied by the fact by you know, sex scandals, abuse, racism, transphobia, homophobia. They can never be ruined uh, by, you know, human flaws. They will always be the ideals that we can aspire to. So we will always need heroes, but I think we need to remember that our heroes should be fictional and they should represent what our ideals should be. And then we can hold them into the same regard that we want to hold humans up to. And then when a human doesn't live up to those regards, we can remember they're still human. They'll never be our real heroes. Because our real heroes can't be tarnished by the failings of humanity itself. They will always be better than us and lead the way. I feel like I should do that uh, Robert R. Murrow, like, good night and good luck after that. I got really, um, like, intense and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, what do you call it, uh, like, deep towards the end. <laughs> Deeper than I was expecting it to, but you know, good.
go with you just go with the go with what the, I just went with what I was thinking at the moment, and uh, that's where my mind went. So uh, let's hold off on uh, hero talk for a while, and remember that humans are flawed. Don't be surprised when their flaws are shown, but always hold them accountable for their actions. Your your heroes should never be human because humans will always let you down. Keep your heroes fictional, folks. Maybe I should put that on a t-shirt or something. I need to monetize this show somehow. Uh, Anyway, with that, with the discussion out of the way, let's go back to the Star Wars talk because, hey, guess what? It's trailer talk time, and you know what's coming out this weekend. That's right, it's the Ferdinand trailer! Woo! Uh, but first got to watch something for some old 70s property that's getting a new entry. Uh, something called Stare Where's the Lost Jetty? I don't know. Never heard of it. So uh, let's check that out. By the way, this was all a joke in case you didn't understand. This is the Star Wars trailer in case you missed the joke. When I found you. Okay, that was Kylo. Oh, those new uh, walkers look awesome. Untamed power. That's a nice callback to uh, Revenge of the Sith. Mark Hamill's just the best. Let the past die. Kill it. If you have to. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. This Christmas. I knew we walk. See the actual cap, uh, Commander Stokes? Snokes? I need someone. Stokes? That guy? New Emperor? To show me my place in all this. Yeah, that, that bit at the end is a lie. He, uh, somebody already called that out as misleading. Yeah, let's know what actually happens. <laughs> if you see the trailer, you know what I'm talking about, but, um, basically, uh, you know, something like they try to make it seem like, ooh, what if Ray's about to do this thing? Look who she's talking to. And that, and people were like, that's not what happened. This never really happened in the movie. She's not talking to that guy. She's talking to a different guy. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited. I 
really this looks really good. This looks like the nice step up from uh, Force Awakens. Like this leaks feel. I hope this fe- this is the Empire to the Force Awakens uh, A New Hope because then we can own that means we will probably have a contender for the best Star Wars movie. Because right now Force Awakens is a, is right is for me was third behind um A New Hope and Empire because eh, I've never got into Return of the Jedi. Uh that one's fourth for me and then the prequels weren't all that good. Um Rogue One is behind I think um Return of the Jedi. I haven't revisited it in a while. I remember liking it, but I remember not being as into it as uh, The Force Awakens. So, well, so yeah, we'll wait and see, but I'm excited. I got, I still have my tickets pre, I had my tickets pre-ordered back in August, I think. Uh, so, I'm all excited. Here we go! Star Wars in December. Apparently it's a tradition now. Now, of course, the trailer you all came to hear and watch Ferdinand with John Cena. I can't afford the actual music, um, so you have to deal with this really bad version of it. Anyway, let's talk about this Ferdinand movie. Let's see how that is. Oh, we do not need a break dancing bull. Yep, that's me. I'm Ferdinand. Blue sky. Boo. Boo. It's like uh, very big. Holy beefaroni, you're ginormous. More me to love. Very strong. You ready to put those wings to work? Launch. Oh, no. You shot Maria into the sun. Sorry. Family of pet. <laughs> Who's my good boy? Hey, I thought I was the good boy. But if the world sees Ferdinand as one thing, a fighter. I am here to select a bull. My hands are my instruments, as are my arms, legs, chest, and buttocks. Uh, nope. I'll pass. Yeah, we don't need a butt joke. We didn't need the butt joke. Ferdinand feels. Let's go out there and give it 110 percent. Woohoo! Match him in the head. Actually, I'm gonna pass on the violence. <laughs> This is on fire. You're finally ready to fight? Come on! I am not a fighting bull. The movie sends a message that resonates very strongly with me. Don't judge a bull by his cover. There are places out there where you don't get pushed around for being yourself. Hedge for one and hog for all. Don't leave me hanging. Everybody in. I love Gabriel Iglesias, but. Creators of Ice Age and Rio. John Cena, Kate McKinnon, Anthony Anderson, Bobby McCannavale, Peyton Manning, Gina Rodriguez, Gabriel Iglesias, Juanes. Out of this place. He's coming now. Can you just try to be a little more quiet? Get it? It sounds like he's farting. The door to freedom. Just do exactly what we do. Maybe don't do 
do exactly as we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I see stuff like that, where it's like really, really like you feel like it's it's like condescending in its humor, where where it's being immature for like, <laughs> look at us, aren't we silly? And good kids movies don't need to do that. Like even Captain Underpants. With as immature as those books were, were ne never went out of their way to be more immature than the books. And Dave, P Dave Pilkey knew how to write that immaturity in a way that wasn't really condescending. It wasn't like, hey, look, we have nothing better to do, so here's a fart joke, and here was God talking about his butt. Get it? it it's funny because butts and farting is funny to two-year-olds. See? That's, I guess that's my thing, is you can do so much better jokes than that. Come on, man. Try harder. Uh, that being said, I still kind of am looking forward to this. I, I really hope most of it can make up for, the, for those really, really bad parts. But we'll have to wait and see. Uh, those are the big ones coming out this weekend. So, uh... So uh, we'll see you next weekend. And as for this episode, it's almost over. Uh, well, since it's almost over, I feel like I'm missing something. Uh, oh, wait. I think that means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatsNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, just visit our website, G-U-M-B-I-E-C-A-T-Networks.com. And you, while you're there, you can check out all of our other fine programming, Tragic Missile, which is the Dungeons & Dragons podcast, IDM, and as well as Maji Day, which I do with Mike Palace from Game Kiwi, as well as stuff that isn't featuring me. I highly recommend the Ultimate Showdown podcast, where it's a tournament-style debate to see who would win in a fight. And... <laughs> We've got um, the uh, I've mentioned I've uh, I advertised them on the podcast before. Uh, Once more with feeling, which is the Buffy fan cast, as well as Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, which is a horror podcast that covers all kinds of horror movies. I forget what they just did recently, but uh, they cover just about everything you can think of in terms of horror, it, uh, obscure like cult classics, as well as mainstream titles. Uh, I highly check them out as well as Snarkcast, which I think is Donna's other main podcast that she does uh all kinds of stuff on the network uh we're hoping to add new stuff as well whatever but uh we oh uh jim's getting back on a random podcast generator soon so expect new episodes from that that's our pilot podcast podcast pilot program where we get to showcase what podcast we would like to bring to the network maybe fingers crossed and if you want to check as well as maybe feature some Odds and ends that wouldn't fit anywhere else. You know that's where we. Uh, if you want to, if you want to listen to something fun, go check out uh, the episode on Random Podcast Generator called Project Cool Baby. When uh, Travis and Griffin McElroy announced that their kids would be born about the same time, and they had to take a break, uh, a bunch of uh, my brother and bro my brother, my brother and me fans got together and wanted to do some fun fan podcasts where they tried to do the bim bam themselves and uh we i did one with jim and with Tra uh not travis <laughs> um tristan 
Tristan the Marine, uh, who was one of the co-hosts of uh, Ultimate Showdown. So you get to hear three Gumby Cat co-hosts and hosts all do try to do my bim bam. <laughs> Uh, it is a train wreck, but it's a fun train wreck. I had a blast recording with those guys. I would love to do a, a, a podcast with those three guys again, too. The three of us, Jim and Jim and Tristan. I would love to do a podcast with them. Uh, but yeah, Random Podcast Generator is coming back soon. Check it out. It's one of my favorite. It's one another one of my favorites on our network. Um, but if you don't want to go to the website, you can always find us on your various uh, podcasting platforms. Look for us on iTunes, Google Play. And if we're not on the podcast app you use, let us know, and we'll be sure to try and add uh, try to add our shows to your uh, listening app, whatever you use, so that you can enjoy us on the go as well. And while you're there, you can be, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let other people know that, hey, you like these shows. You want them to check it out, too. Uh, other than that, be sure to share us on social media. Uh, the social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the big news and updates are. That's where I announce new episodes. That's where I announce what I'm seeing, new releases. That's where I announce my, um, my initial thoughts on a release after it comes out. And, uh, uh, and when I announce any major changes to the net, to the show. And, uh... Be sure to check me out on Twitter at CornJunkiePod. You get the Facebook feed, plus uh, you get to interact with me more personally, as well as you get the Trailer Talk segment, where I comment on trailers before the new releases, and the Munch Along segment, where I comment on movies at, uh, as I am watching them. And uh, I've also added an Instagram account. That's Popcorn Junkie Podcast on Instagram. That's where a lot of the stuff going into the Facebook feed comes from now as well as I'm on Stardust. Uh, it Following Doug Walker's lead, I've joined Stardust. I've only gotten this weekend's releases, so you can hear my thoughts on Three Billboards and The Disaster Artist. But if I see a new, re- but if I see a new thing, I'm gonna post it to Stardust first. So you can join me over there. I should be at Popcorn Junkie on Stardust. And if not, I'll always share it to the Facebook feed. And then I also do Twitch gaming. I finally started my uh, Twitch stream. I'm hoping to start a YouTube channel based on it once I can have the once I have the time to edit down the video. I think I'll hopefully do some this weekend. But um, yeah, I, right now I'm playing Cuphead and I'm going still going through Pokemon Red uh, in the Adventures of the Pokemaniac series where I play through all the main series Pokemon games. And right now uh, we are just outside of Rock Tunnel in Pokemon Red. So we're doing, we're doing all right for ourselves. We're about to get halfway through the badges. So uh, in, a couple, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll probably get through the badges, the, most of the badges, and then we'll be about halfway through the game already. <laughs> I'll be darned. We, I, might be, I might be done sooner than I thought. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That's on Friday nights at 10.30 or, or at 10 o'clock uh, Eastern time. Uh, it, we did it at 7.30 this weekend because I was busy Friday night. Uh, we'll, but I'll keep you up to date if I'm, if, when, when I am streaming. If I am not streaming, stay tuned to the Facebook feed for that. And if there's anything else you want to say about the podcast, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of um, corrections you want me to make, any kind of messages you want me to relay, anything at all, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, 
And you can call me Megara, because I got me some weak ankles. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. And none of it was illustrated better than when Greg Sesterno, the, um, is it Sesterno or Sesterno? Hold on. Let me pull up. I want to get this, I want to get his, I don't want to keep saying his name. Sestero. Okay, so let me re-record the opening. Hold on. Or the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Batman. We can't be let, wait, why did I say Batman? It's Captain America, damn it. Um, let me cut that out. Or the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, 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 is cut this out too.